Did you hear about the man with the panicked look on his face? A group of people had been with him when they suddenly moved ahead. He rushed to catch up. And he was overheard saying, as he ran to catch up with them, there they go, I must hurry, I am their leader. We live in a day when good leaders are in short supply. We lack inspiring and trustworthy leaders, and this is especially true in the church. We need godly leaders. The U.S. Infantry has a symbol. It's a soldier with a rifle in one hand, and with the other hand, he's waving onward, encouraging his men to follow him into battle. Follow me, boys, is the famous cry. The picture is a vivid model of the kind of leadership we need in the church. Leaders who teach by example. None of this, do as I say, but not as I do. We need leaders who live what they teach and what they preach. And nowhere in Scripture is there a better example of this kind of leadership than in the life of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is a manual, really, for spiritual leadership. Remember, Nehemiah led the third wave of Jewish patriots from their exile in Babylon back to Judah. Remember last week we talked about Zerubbabel, who led the first wave back to rebuild the temple. Ezra led a second wave of Jews back to rebuild the people. And it was Nehemiah that rebuilt the walls of the city of Jerusalem. In chapter 1, verse 11, Nehemiah tells us that I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah's job was to sip the king's chardonnay before it passed over his royal lips. You see, in a monarchy, if you don't like the king, you have a lifetime to tolerate him. And this is often too much for the critics, especially in the case of an evil king. And in an oriental court, it was easy for an undercover operative to sneak into the palace to spike the king's punch with poison. And when the wine was laced with poison, the cupbearer was the first to know. He was the taste tester. He was the poison meter. Thankfully, Nehemiah's services had never been needed. (laughs) In America, there's no such job as the president's cupbearer. We don't like uh, to spike the leader's punch. But what we do in America is that uh, if we don't like the leader, we vote on the first Tuesday in November and we spike the ballot box. <laughs> it was an honor, really, to hold the post of the king's cupbearer. You see, it inferred something of the person's character. Only a trustworthy man, only a loyal servant, only a man of integrity, Only a man who could not be bribed or bought was allowed to be a cupbearer. And such was Nehemiah. Artaxerxes, the emperor of Persia, had unequivocal trust in Nehemiah, in his loyalty and in his character. Not only did Nehemiah serve as the cupbearer, but as a cupbearer, he was probably also trusted with many administrative duties. He was probably a professional manager. We're not told how he was elevated within the Persian Empire, but he was. God had promoted him to a significant place in the Persian government. The story of Nehemiah begins when he receives a report on the progress that was being made on the rebuilding of Jerusalem. 
And the news was bleak. A delegation of Jews just back from Judah provide a terse summation of what was happening in verse 3. They said the survivors who are left with the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And in verse 4, Nehemiah tells us how he reacted. I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, Nehemiah tells us in verse 1 that it was in Shushan where he met the Jerusalem delegation. And Shushan was the winter residence of the Persian emperor. It was kind of a resort town, a nice, uh, calm environment. Nehemiah really had it made. He occupied a prominent position. He lived in the palace. He lived there in a resort area, Shushan. He even ate the king's food, drank literally from the king's cup. His life was full of leisure and luxury, and yet Nehemiah sat down when he heard this news and he wept and were told for many days. You see, God burdened his heart. Nehemiah had been footloose and fancy free until God allowed his servant Nehemiah to help shoulder a concern. Remember, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, Jesus says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yes, his yoke is lightweight. Yes, it fits us just right. And Jesus bears the bulk of that load. But his servants are strapped to a yoke. They do have a purpose. They do carry a burden. I think one of the greatest honors that can come upon us is to receive a God-given burden. For God to harness us to a specific purpose. When God calls you to help show a shoulder a burden, He is counting on you. He is wanting you to be ready. He is expecting you to be trustworthy. He's enrolling you into His service. He's choosing to use you for Jesus' sake when He shares a burden with you. Nehemiah receives this burden. A burden, you might say, is a little of the load. God carries the bulk of the load, but when he gives us a little of the load to carry, he allows us into his heart. It's really a beautiful thing. When a burden from God comes upon us, it gives us the privilege to fill God's heart, to sense his concern, to know his passion. For me, life would be meaningless. It would be hollow and shallow without a specific burden from God. In 1980, God put a burden on my heart to plant a Calvary Chapel-style ministry in Stone Mountain. And over the last 20 years, that burden has only grown in passion and in intensity. So often God puts a specific burden on our hearts, but somehow that burden diminishes rather than increases in momentum. And over time, Some people lose the burden altogether. How do you stay passionate about a burden? How do you keep one really alive in your heart? Well, notice the four things that Nehemiah did. First, he bathed his burden in prayer. His prayer is in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. It's a wonderful prayer, a passionate prayer. And before we act, we first need to pray. In a work of God, waiting always comes before working. And so Nehemiah 
took the burden and he bathed it in prayer. Secondly, he kept his burden before a big and gracious God. Notice how he addresses God in verse 5. He says, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you. Understand, God doesn't give you a burden to bury you. And if you tackle it on your own, it will. That's why we need to see the answer to our burden in God's greatness and in His graciousness. Keep your burden before a big and gracious God. Thirdly, he understood his burden through the framework of Scripture. Notice in verse 8, Nehemiah says, Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses. And it's so vital to keep a biblical perspective on the purpose, on the cause that God has given us. Fourth, he's willing to act on his burden. In verse 11, Nehemiah asks God to bless him as he approaches the Persian king. He has a plan to return to Jerusalem. He takes action about this burden. Guys, if God lays a burden on your heart, don't run from it. Don't try to avoid it. Do what Nehemiah did. Bathe it in prayer. Keep it before the Lord. Understand it through Scripture and take some action to achieve it. The Puritan pastor Phillips Brooks sums up Nehemiah's approach. I do not pray for a lighter load, but for a stronger back. And that should be my prayer, your prayer, when God gives us a burden. For three months, Nehemiah bore this burden privately, but just bathing it in prayer. He carried on his normal responsibilities. But you see, you can't harbor a God-given burden for long before it begins to affect your disposition, your demeanor. And Nehemiah's employer, the emperor, notices that something is bugging his cupbearer. And in chapter 2, verse 2, the king asks Nehemiah, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Now understand, part of the cupbearer's job was to stay cheerful before the king. He was supposed to cheer up the king. A gloomy cupbearer might find his head on the chopping block. Nehemiah says, So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? He, he just sort of spills the beans. I mean, it's like, the opportunity he's been waiting on, and he just pours out what's bothering him, his passion, his burden. The king wants to know what Nehemiah desires to do. And I love how Nehemiah puts it in verse 4. The king said to me, what do you request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. As he made a quick prayer. This prayer that follows, we don't even really know its contents. He says he just prayed to the God of heaven. It was not an elaborate, eloquent prayer like the prayer in chapter 1. This prayer is like a flare. You know, a flare is just kind of a short-lived shot in the air, you know. You just like to imagine, pop it up into the sky. It's a burst of light. A flare is a cry in the midst of an emergency. And that's what Nehemiah does here. This is what I like to call a flare prayer. Ever prayed any flare prayers? 
You know, we can pray those long, eloquent prayers and God hears them, He answers them. But you know, God likes to answer flare prayers too. And so Nehemiah, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah shoots off his prayer. Then he makes his request of Artaxerxes in verse 5. Send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. King Artaxerxes complies with Nehemiah's petition, and he gives him letters instructing the keeper of the king's forest to supply Nehemiah with lumber. And so when Nehemiah rides into Jerusalem, he comes with two things, letters and lumber. Now, this is fascinating, especially when you look at the story of Nehemiah typologically. The name Nehemiah means comforter of Jehovah. And who does Jesus call God's comforter? The Holy Spirit. Nehemiah is a type of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants to rebuild the walls of our lives. He wants to rebuild our emotional stability, our spiritual health, our personal character, our relational happiness. We've been damaged by sin. Jesus wants to rebuild those walls. And on the cross, He financed the operation. He now sends His Holy Spirit into our hearts to direct that work of rebuilding, just as Nehemiah came back from Persia to direct the operation. The Spirit's objective in our lives is the same as Nehemiah's, to fill in the gaps, to close in the holes, to repair the walls, to take care of the damage that has been done by sin. And like Nehemiah, the Holy Spirit comes with two tools. Letters, God's Word, and lumber, God's blessings. It's through the truth of God and the love of God that God puts our lives back together. The Holy Spirit works. This book is a marvelous portrait of the Spirit's ministry in the hearts and lives of His people. Now, when Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he takes a low profile. Before he reveals his purpose, before he recruits any help, he surveys the task. He sees for himself what he's up against. And I think it's interesting that the Holy Spirit does the same. He searches the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He exposes the areas in our life that need repair, that need refurbishment. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, Nehemiah takes a nighttime stroll to scope out the ruins of Jerusalem. He surveys this situation for three days until finally he addresses the leaders of the city in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Now, I like Nehemiah's approach. He doesn't just barge in. He doesn't just take charge. For three days, he has tried to understand the situation. He's tried to see it from the people's point of view. He's tried to identify with the people's predicament. Notice in verse 17, he uses the plural pronoun us or we several times. He takes pains to communicate to the Jews that he understands that he's one of them. And that he will work with them. That's so important. So often we want to barge in and take control. 
rather than loving people and showing sensitivity toward people and really communicating to them that you're wanting to work with them. You see, there's a big difference between being a boss and being a leader. It's been said the boss drives men. The leader coaches them. The boss depends on authority. The leader on goodwill. The boss inspires fear. The leader inspires enthusiasm. The boss says, I. The leader says, we. The boss fixes the blame for the breakdown. The leader fixes the breakdown. The boss says, go. The leader says, let's go. And you'll find that Nehemiah was a leader, not a boss. Now, verse 18 Nehemiah tells us, I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to this good work. It was said of the chairman of the Ford Motor Company, Henry Ford, he could get anything out of men because he just talked and would tell them stories. He'd never say, I want this done. He'd say... I wonder if we can do it, and the people would. This is what Nehemiah does. He just shares the work that God has done in his life to get him to Judah. What has happened before King Artaxerxes. And and just telling the story inspires the Jews here to begin the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. God had set his plan in motion, and the Jews realized that they wanted and needed to be a part of that plan. You see, a good leader establishes vision. A good leader inspires people. What Tom Landry, longtime head of the Dallas Cowboys, said of coaches also applies to leaders. The job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. (laughs) And that's what Nehemiah does here. Chapter 2 closes with the three stooges. Not Curly, Larry, and Moe, but Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. These three stooges become Nehemiah's arch nemesis. Verse 10 tells us that their initial reaction when they heard Nehemiah was they were disturbed. They were angry, really. It says they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. You see, these guys were anti-Semitic. Any attempt to advance the cause of the Jewish nation met their resistance. And Nehemiah says in verse 19, they laughed at us and despised us. Once a man approached Charles Finney and asked him how he could believe in a literal devil. Finney answered, you try opposing him for a while and see if you don't believe in a devil. Whenever you do a work for God, you will encounter opposition. You'll encounter persecution. And I love how Nehemiah responds to the persecutors. So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Notice, Nehemiah countered opposition with position. He knew the promises of God. 
He understood the God-given right of the Jews to occupy Jerusalem and to rebuild their city. He understood that. Nehemiah knew that Sanballat and his cronies had no authority over he or the people. And this is why we need to lay hold of our position in Christ. You see, once we're assured of the rights and privileges that are ours as children of God, we'll be able to stake our claim. We'll be able to stand our ground. We'll be able to resist the devil's threats and propaganda. Like Nehemiah, we should learn to counter opposition with position. Chapter 3 reveals that Nehemiah was not only a motivator, but an organizer. You see, Nehemiah knew the answer to the riddle, how do you eat an elephant? You know the answer to that riddle, one bite at a time. That's how you eat an elephant. And this was his plan for the colossal undertaking of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He divides the wall up into small sections, little bites. And then he assigns each section to a different family. The wall was built literally one bite at a time. Again, Nehemiah is a type of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to help you and me find our place in the body of Christ. God bestows upon us callings and ministries and gifts. And he assigns us a place on the wall where we can help build the kingdom of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who helps us find our place, discover our gifts and find our place so that we can be involved in the great work that God is doing. The Holy Spirit makes sure that we're on the wall, not off the wall. Here's another lesson. Just as it took each family mentioned in chapter 3 to accomplish this work, likewise it takes each of us working together to accomplish what God wants to do in this part of the wall called Calvary Chapel Stone Mount. You see, we all have a part. If the wall is 95% complete, but there's one small crack, then hey, wild animals or foreign invaders can still get in and wreak havoc. Guys, without you, there's a gap in our wall that will endanger the rest of us. Perhaps you've heard the report, who does the work in America? Of the 200 million Americans, 84 million are over the age of 60, leaving 116 million people to do the work. But of those 116 million, 75 million Americans are under the age of 20, leaving 41 million to do the work. Of those 41 million, 22 people are unemployed. 22 million people are unemployed, leaving 19 million people to do the work. Of those 19 million people, 4 million are in the armed forces, leaving 15 million to do the work. Of the remaining 15 million, 14 million, 800,000 people are employed by the government, leaving just 200,000 folks to do the work. Of those 200,000 Americans, 188,000 are in insane asylums, leaving 12,000 people to do the work. Of the remaining 12,000 people, 11,998 have committed crimes or are in penitentiaries leaving just two of us to do the work. And quite frankly, I'm tired of doing everything. If we are to fulfill our mission on the earth and build the kingdom of God, each one of us has work to do. We need to find our spot. 
on the wall. And we need to begin to fulfill and fortify that spot so that together we can accomplish God's purposes. Under Nehemiah's leadership, the work was progressing rapidly. But as the work picks up, so does the opposition. Chapter 4, verse 1 tells us that Sanballat became furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. Notice his insulting comments in verse 2. What are these feeble Jews doing? In verse 3, his sidekick, Tobiah, chimes in. Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And their tauntings were designed to break down morale and to intimidate the workers. Notice, Nehemiah refuses to become distracted by the taunts and the criticisms. And I think part of Nehemiah's brilliance was his ability to stay on task, to avoid the distractions. Priorities became Nehemiah's protection. You see, rather than get caught up in addressing the, the cynics, Nehemiah stays focused. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4, he just turns his enemies over to God and he continues the work. When you get confused, just keep working. When people begin to criticize you, just keep working. When you get persecuted, just stay at what God has called you to do. Don't let those things distract you from the great work God has called you to do. Nehemiah tells us in chapter 4, verse 6, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah played a pivotal role in the rebuilding of the walls, but the people still needed a mind to work. There's a sign in a San Francisco distribution center which reads, If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you ought to be here five minutes before quitting time. You know, you'll get nowhere in your spiritual life if you don't have a mind to work. The Holy Spirit will help you rebuild the walls of your life He wants to come in. He wants to do supernatural things. But you too have to work at it. If you don't do your part, the walls will remain in ruins. You've got to apply God's Word once it's revealed. You've got to pray and seek the Lord as He reveals His presence to you. You've got to fellowship with other believers. You've got to worship. You've got to get out and share your faith. You've got to get with the program. The Holy Spirit wants to do wonderful things. But he will do those wonderful things for people who also have a mind to work. In verse 7, when Sanballat and his cronies start seeing the gaps closing in, they become very angry, we're told. And they begin planning a surprise attack to sabotage the work. And in verses 10 and 11, Judah tells us what made these threats so dangerous. He said, the strength of the laborers is failing And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. They were working around so much debris that it made an ambush easy to pull off. This is also the problem in the reconstruction of our lives. So much debris, so much rubbish remains from the past. 
The Bible has a name for this debris. It's called the flesh. It includes the evil thoughts, the embarrassing memories, the wrong attitudes, the bad habits, the twisted perspectives that we picked up along the way in our life of sin. Now that we're a Christian, God has saved us. He's changed us. He's entered our heart to rebuild those walls. But that debris is still there. And it gets in the way of the work. The Holy Spirit works in our lives. He establishes new thoughts, healthy attitudes, good habits, biblical perspectives. But the flesh is always there. Like Nehemiah, we're also rebuilding in the midst of the rubbish. And it's the flesh that makes it easier for the enemy to infiltrate and sabotage and try to destroy the work. God is doing great things in your heart. You're so excited. The love of God is just filling you up to overflowing when suddenly one of those old thoughts comes back into your mind. or You're tempted with a past lust. You know, we're working among the debris. Good things are happening, but the debris is still there. We have to trust in our builder. I love verse 9. It sums up Nehemiah's approach. When he hears about the enemy's threat, he says, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. As you read through this, you'll, you'll notice that Nehemiah does two things throughout. He works and he prays. He doesn't play into the enemy's hands and stop the work. Neither does he work in such a way as if it's all dependent upon him. He has this beautiful blend. He works as if it's up to him, but then he prays as if it's up to God. That's always a good strategy. He works and he prays. Nehemiah's strategy for ministry was simple. It needs to be ours. Pray and work. Pray and work. In his book, Eating Problems for Breakfast, Tim Hansel lists the 10 steps to success. You might want to jot them down. The 10 steps to success. Number one, pray. Number two, work. Number three, pray. Number four, work. Number five, pray. Number six, work. Number seven, pray. Number eight, work. Number nine, pray. Number 10, work. You get the point. We need a mind to pray and we need a mind to work. Now, in light of these threats, Nehemiah sets guards and he arms the workers. Guys, the Christian life requires a twofold mentality, building and battling, war and work. We read in verse 16 that half the workers stood guard while the other half worked on the wall. And notice where he sets the guards, verse 13, behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. And here are Satan's two favorite targets, the foundation and the openings, what we believe and what we receive. Guard the openings. Guard your eyes. Guard your ears. Don't let evil influences into your life through the music that you listen to or through the programs or movies that you watch. Develop some high standards and guard your heart. Don't buy into this world's system of belief, this world's worldview and frame of reference. It's going to hell. You don't want to be a part of it. You want to build on a solid foundation, biblical truth, divine authority, 
We need to build and then we need to battle. So what if you build walls, but you aren't ready when the enemy attacks? So what if you build and you're not ready to battle? On the other hand, I know believers that have a combat mentality. That's all they want to do is battle. They love to fight. They're always anti-something. But they never take the time to build and cultivate a personal peace and holiness and joy in their life. Verse 17 strikes the balance. With one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. If you want to get the walls erected, if you want to do the construction, it takes two things, a sword and a shovel. And you need for both to be working in tandem, building on our most holy faith, as Jude says, but then battling against the wiles of the devil. There's another danger that Nehemiah addresses in verse in chapter 4. He realizes that the workers are spread out on the wall so that if one section comes under attack, no one's going to know about it until it's too late. And so he proceeds to develop a means of communication. He goes out and he buys Nokia cell phones for all of the workers. Just checking, just making sure you were listening. No, he does come up with some technology that solves the problem. In verse 20, he sets up an early warning system. A trumpet blast means that an attack is underway. And when everyone hears the trumpet, they're to rally to the sound and they're to fight for one another. And this is why it's so important that we as believers communicate with one another. This is why we meet together on a regular basis. This is why we need to get to know each other. To me, the saddest news is to hear about a brother who has been ambushed by the enemy, and I hear about it after the fact. If we had heard in time, we could have offered our encouragement. We could have provided our support. We could have perhaps helped them through the trial. But we weren't communicating. We didn't know. And therefore, we lost a brother. Up until now, Nehemiah's obstacles have come from outside the camp But in chapter 5, a problem rises from within. Greed has gotten a grip on some of the people. The rich are oppressing the poor. They're making loans and charging exorbitant interest. And when their fellow Jews can't pay, the creditors are confiscating property and even selling children into slavery. It was an awful situation. Remember Exodus 22, verse 35, forbid a Jew from charging his brother's interest. And Nehemiah calls the people together. He reminds them that they were once all slaves in Babylon, and yet God had mercy on them. They once all owed a debt, and God had mercy. And he encourages these perpetrators to rectify what they've done, to return the land, to cancel the interest, to treat each other with mercy. And the people obeyed. I want to show you several subtleties in chapter 5 that I think are marks of good leadership. Notice, first of all, in verse 7, Nehemiah says, After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles. (laughs) Notice he thought before he acted. That seems such a simple principle, and yet why is it so hard for us to adhere to? To just Think before you act. Always use your noodle before you order the pasta. 
It's a good rule to follow. Notice too, he practiced what he preached. Verse 10 tells us that while some of the Jews were charging interest, Nehemiah was extending aid to help the most needy people. In the last half of the chapter, Nehemiah describes how he refused to draw a typical governor's salary. He was there to serve the people, not for the people to serve him. And he refused to use the tax money to finance for himself a luxurious lifestyle. Nehemiah and his servants lived modestly. And they took only what was needed. And this is an excellent example for all spiritual leaders to follow. In chapter 6, the attacks against Nehemiah grow personal. The three stooges try to lure Nehemiah out into the plain of Ono. And their plan is to assassinate him. And verse 2 tells us that he realizes this. Oh no! They thought to do me harm. And in verse 3, Nehemiah answers their invitation. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? And again, Nehemiah refuses to allow his enemies to pull him away from the work at hand. He is focused. Four times, Sanballat sends Nehemiah an invitation to meet, and all four times, Nehemiah turns him down. Finally, Sanballat sends a letter promising to file a report with the king of Persia, accusing Nehemiah of treason and rebellion. Outright lies. Again, Sanballat is trying to divert Nehemiah from the work. This time it's through lies and through rumors, false accusations. But you got to hand it to Nehemiah. He refuses to be distracted. He prays, oh God, strengthen my hand. In other words, help me stay focused, Lord. I've been told that when a pastor gets discouraged and leaves a church, it's usually due to eight people in the church. A disgruntled few starts telling lies, starts stirring up rumors, and it eats and hassles the pastor until he eventually quits. Nehemiah refuses to be drawn away from what God has called him to do. His priorities are his protection. Nehemiah takes care of his character. And he trusts God with his reputation. It's been said, so live that when people speak evil of you, no one will believe it. And that was certainly what happened with Nehemiah. Nehemiah's single-mindedness protects him from another attack as well. Tobiah and Sanballat hire a Jew named Shemaiah to draw Nehemiah into the temple. And it's under the auspices of added protection. Oh, Nehemiah, it'll be safer if you sleep here in the temple. But Nehemiah wasn't a Levite. And if he had entered the temple, it would have given his enemies grounds to accuse him. It was really a clever scheme that they had posed. Nehemiah, though, doesn't fall for it. He refuses to enter the temple for two reasons. First, it's not his nature to run from the enemy. He's not a runner, not a quitter. He doesn't need the extra protection. God will protect him. And second, he knows his place is on the wall, not in the temple. This time, it's 
principle that provides Nehemiah protection. You see, when you do the right thing, God can protect you. It's when you step outside of God's will that you're on your own. If you want protection, if you want to keep from falling into the snares of the enemy, priorities are good protection. Keep the right priorities. Principles are good protection. If you'll have the right priorities, if you'll live according to principle, you'll make it much easier for God to protect you and keep you safe. Chapter 6, verse 15 and 16 marks a turning point. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elu in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God. The wall is up. It's built. It's done. You'd think the enemies of Nehemiah would admit defeat and just give up, but not so. Verse 19 closes. And Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Understand, our enemy Satan never gives up. And that's why we have to stay vigilant. Besides, there was still work to do. Now the wall of Jerusalem is in place. And now the people have an incentive to come back into the city and to rebuild their homes and to repopulate the city. And in chapter 7, the Lord lays it on Nehemiah's heart to update the genealogical records of the Jews. And he starts with Zerubbabel's passenger list that we already looked, back, looked at back in Ezra chapter 2. Once the walls were up around Jerusalem, it became a safe place. Business resumed, community began to form, public gatherings took place. Now that the basic needs had been provided for, the people could focus on their higher calling of worshiping God. And in chapter 8, we find a gathering taking place by the water gate. Here's another water gate breakthrough, but with a much better outcome. Nehemiah stands before the people and he reads the law of Moses and it causes the people to weep for they realize how far they have fallen from God's standard. But Nehemiah and Ezra command the people not to mourn. Don't focus on how far you need to go. Focus for the moment on how far you've come. Progress has been made. And I love the encouragement in verse 10. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't that wonderful? So many times we can focus on where we need to be and we can get depressed. But if we'll turn that around and focus on where we were and how far we've come, we can get excited. And guys, it is the joy of the Lord that strengthens us and encourages us and gives us fortification in our walk with Christ. I like what C.S. Lewis once said, joy is the serious business of heaven. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord gives us wings to rise above our circumstances. It fortifies us in times of trial and persecution. Joy is the secret of the Christian sleeve. All hell might break loose around you. But the Christian still has a reason to rejoice. He or she has heaven in their heart. 
You remember Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. And why? It was for the joy set before Him. Joy was His strength. The shortest verse in the English Bible is John 10, verse 35. Jesus wept. But the shortest verse in the Greek Bible is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Rejoice evermore. Isn't it interesting? Jesus experienced sorrow for a season so that you and I could rejoice forevermore. Joy is the serious business of heaven. I had a guy come up to me this morning and he said, Sandy, I enjoyed the service so much today and I just want to thank you for keeping church fun. It should be. There's tremendous joy in Jesus. And we should take that joy and we should rejoice together and we should have fun together serving the Lord. It takes 72 muscles to frown, but only 14 muscles to smile. There's a lot less effort goes into a smile than goes into a frown. That's why some of you are so tired all the time. You've been frowning more than smiling. God wants us to rejoice, to take joy in Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord is our strength. As the people read the law, it dawned on them that the Feast of Tabernacles was upon them. And so they built the outdoor booths to remind themselves of their journey through the wilderness and of God's provision. And it was a wonderful celebration. All eight days of the feast, Ezra continued to read the word to the people. And it was a wonderful time of celebration, a regular Jesus festival. Verse 17 says there was very great great gladness. About three weeks later, the Jews held another assembly. But this time it was not for rejoicing, it was for confession and repentance. For as they read the law, where God had forbidden associations with pagans, so many of them realized that they had been guilty. In chapter 9, certain Levites arise and recount the history of the nation. They start with Abraham, they recount the exodus from Egypt, God's revelation from Sinai, the wanderings through the wilderness, the conquest of Canaan, then the dark days of disobedience and judgment. But I love verse 31 of chapter 9. It says, Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. And in verse 33, the Levites demonstrate real repentance. They take responsibility for their failures, and rather than blame God or someone else, They admit their own fault. They say, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. It's our fault, not God's. And they say in verse 36, here we are, servants today, in the land that you gave to your fathers, to our fathers, to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. In other words, Lord, you've given us a new start. And help us not blow it. Help us not go back and repeat those same mistakes. Help us to keep ourselves pure and not develop those associations with the wicked and with evil people, but help us to to keep our hearts fixed on you and to stay faithful to you. And they pledge themselves afresh to serve the Lord. And in chapter 10, the nation's leaders sign a psalm as a covenant with God. 
and the people agree to remain separate from the pagans to keep the law of Moses, the Sabbaths, the feasts, the sacrifices, the tithes and the offerings. And in chapter 11, a lottery takes place to pick out the families who are going to be allowed to live within the walls of Jerusalem. I guess it was the first urban renewal project in all of history. And the chapter records the winners and the losers of the lottery, who gets to live within the city, within the walls, who has to live outside. Chapter 12 begins with a list of the Levites and the priests. The chapter ends with the dedication of the new walls surrounding Jerusalem. And this dedication is a wonderful thing. It was very interesting. Nehemiah divided the singers, the Levitical singers, into two choirs. One of the choirs followed Ezra eastward. The other followed Nehemiah westward. And they walked along the walls, on top of the walls of the new city, all the way around, singing and praising the Lord until both of the choirs rendezvoused within the temple. It was beautiful. The walls of Jerusalem today are over a thousand years old. They are not Nehemiah's walls. They were built on top of Nehemiah's walls, though. And when you go to Jerusalem today, you can still walk on top of the walls. I love to do this. When I go to Jerusalem, I love to take a few hours and just go down. And, and I use a good place to do it is by the uh, Joppa Gate. And you just go up right there and you can either go one way or the other. And you can just walk around the top of the walls, singing and praising the Lord. And the, the sights, the vistas are just majestic from on top of those walls. Nehemiah's dedication of the walls was a joyous occasion. Verse 43 tells us the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. It had been a long time since these Levitical singers had done their job and it inspired the people. It encouraged the people. In fact, the people began to give of their money in order to support the Levites in their ministry. The people supported their ministry because they had been blessed by their ministry. And this is why... We hope you give to Calvary Chapel, not because you have to. We hope you give to our ministry because you've been blessed by our ministry. And you want to give and you want to support what the Lord is doing. In chapter 13, again, the book of Moses is read. And Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 becomes the issue. No Ammonite or Moabite was allowed to worship in the temple. And yet the priests had allowed an Ammonite to actually live within the temple. You see, when Nehemiah first left Persia to come to Judah, he had told Artaxerxes that he would return. And true to his word, he does return for a short time. But when he re-returns to Jerusalem, he discovers that Eliashab, the priest, has turned the temple into a timeshare. He has fixed up a little apartment within the temple for one of the three stooges. Tobiah, the Ammonite, is actually living within the temple. And Nehemiah says in verse 8, It grieved me bitterly. And he proceeded to toss Tobiah out on his ear. Literally grab him and throw him out. How dare them allow one of the Gentiles to enter into the temple precincts 
when God had required and commanded this separation. Nehemiah found that the people had grown slack in other areas as well. They had stopped tithing to the Lord. And it had forced some of the Levites into other jobs. And for a commentary on Nehemiah chapter 13, you should consult the book of Malachi. Because Malachi was written during Nehemiah's visit to Persia. You remember one of the main themes in in Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 verse 8 asked the question, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. You remember how they were doing it? In tithes and offerings. Or in their case, in the lack thereof. The other night I heard Pastor E.V. Hill make a statement. And he was talking about giving of your finances. He says, if God can get it through you, God will give it to you. I like that. I think it's true. That God blesses us so that we can in turn be a blessing to others. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10 is one place in scripture where God challenges us to prove him. He says, prove me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. In other words, if you give to God, then God in turn will give to you. You can prove God in this. If you'll give of your tithes and offerings, the Lord will bless you in abundance. Nehemiah also deals with the problem of the people's disregard for the Sabbath day. Notice what he tells the merchants who want to do some Saturday business in Jerusalem. Verse 21, he says, I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And it won't be to pray for them. Nehemiah says he'll rough them up. Here these guys are, they're hanging out on Friday night, just kind of waiting, going to go into the city on the Sabbath day to do business. Total violation of the Sabbath requirements. And Nehemiah doesn't like it. Nehemiah also deals with the problem that we confronted back in Ezra chapter 9 and 10. Some of the Jews had committed Solomon's sin and they had entered into marriage with pagan idolatrous women. In verse 24, Nehemiah finds that some of their offspring can't even speak Hebrew. The Jews are losing their racial identity. They're losing their national heritage. And if this continues, it will eventually undermine the Messianic promises that have been made to Abraham and David. God had promised that through their lineage, the Messiah would come. But if the Jewish lineage is not kept pure, how will the Messiah be recognized? Notice in verse 25 how Nehemiah reacts to these perpetrators. He says, so I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. How would you like Nehemiah as your pastor? You slip up here or there. And, hey, Nehemiah was a radical guy. Here he mixes virtue and violence. Too many false moves. Nehemiah will just come over to your house and yank your hair out. Nehemiah knew how to get his congregation's attention, that's for sure. Verse 25 there was definitely a hair-raising experience for the Jews. 
Notice the three sins that Nehemiah radically opposes in chapter 13. The intermingling of Jews with the pagans, the neglecting to pay the tithes, in the irreverence for the Sabbath. Nehemiah was so successful in creating a disdain within the hearts of the people for these three offenses that they almost overreact. And they almost go in the opposite direction. Because they take his warning serious, but then they get very legalistic and they get very rigid in their observance of separation with Gentiles of paying their tithes and of keeping the Sabbath. They become self-righteous in their observance of those three things. And when we get to the days of Jesus, it's interesting, these three things have become the primary preoccupations of the Pharisees. What were the Pharisees big into? Separation with Gentiles, keeping the Sabbath and paying the tithes. And it's just so ironic that Jesus will have to correct them on all three counts. They will have taken it too far and gone overboard and they'll need the Lord's rebuke. And there we have the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, one of the shortest men in the Bible, he was only Nehi, Nehemiah. And so there we have it. There's one man shorter, though, you know, from the book of Job, Bildad the Shuhite. A little shorter than Nehemiah, but there we have it.